It's Sunday, April 10, 2022. And welcome to the ninth episode in this series from Midas Touch and Five Minute News called The Weekend Show. Download the show as audio in addition to my daily Five Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is Harold Malmgren, an economist, geopolitical and geosecurity strategist and international negotiator who's been a senior aide to US presidents John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Harold, thank you so much for joining uh, the weekend show. Uh, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? And we're going to look at some of the news through the week. Obviously, the biggest story is uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson ascending to the Supreme Court uh, as the first black female to do so under Joe Biden's presidency. But it's also been contrasted with we've seen some very extreme laws being um, applied in places like Oklahoma this week, uh, abortion laws that uh, will involve a prison sentence and a huge fine. We've also seen the likes of Republican um, senators grilling Jackson at her hearings and some very kind of racist attitudes and very aggressive tactics. So as somebody with your experience in the White House, when you look at this political landscape now, how do you feel when you see the, the this juxtaposition, this dichotomy of having this joyous moment and progressive moment of Katanji Brown-Jackson ascending to the Supreme Court at the same time as all of this quite aggressive far-right activism and behavior from senators? Uh, we've come a very long way since uh, uh, at the end of the Second World War, um, we went through a phase of rebuilding the economy and helping to rebuild Europe. And then there was an inflection point with JFK, beginning to rethink policy domestically. Uh, and a huge amount was done, um, particularly by Lyndon Johnson, uh, to revamp domestic laws that affected everything from race uh, to poverty. And, uh, and from that point onwards, for at least two decades, uh, we didn't have two parties, but behind the scenes, individual members of Congress worked with each other. They developed ideas irrespective of party and then gradually build a consensus, a core group. Um, and much of the, of the deliberations were not in public. They were members of Congress sitting down with each other, have a drink, think a problem through. Um, a lot of camaraderie, a sense of we're all here to do something for the country. And gradually, through the 80s, 90s, the parties became more confrontational, more ideological. And the backroom discussions faded away. Now, I would say we are at the early stage of a new civil war. Um, confrontation is the daily diet of the news. Um, and the parties themselves are trying to figure out what they stand for 
The Democrats are divided in two camps, progressives and what I would call the mainstream, and they're at each other's throats. So they don't work together very much. The Republicans have no clear identity. There is a division between Trumpers and post-Trumpers, but it's more divided than that. There's no, if you look for a narrative, what are the Republicans going into this next election? The answer is they have no story. There is no narrative. They don't have a policy. They are against the Democrats. Now, this reflects a lot of what's going on at many levels in, in the U.S. society. That's why I said we're at the beginning of a kind of civil war. Um, we have parents versus school boards um, clashing about <coughs> the parents' right to guide by how the student is taught and what they're taught. Uh, and it's becoming a big political issue. We have, of course, clashes about how much policing there should be, how much law and order, uh, how much, how lax should the penalties be for theft. <clears throat> so it's not only racist, it's, um, it's now beginning to permeate daily, daily life. Um, people who are environmentalists despise people who are not. But could you could you have predicted this? I mean, during your, uh, you know, with your wealth of experience in the White House and seeing and seeing, you know, you didn't you never took a political side. You you know, you were a, you were a solutions guy. Right. Yeah. So you 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 didn't sit on one side or the other. But could you have predicted that there would be so much animosity between the left and the right that there wouldn't be I mean there was only three votes for Katanji Brown Jackson from the Republicans you know the rest was was uh, you know Democrats on, on party lines but I mean aside from that really Republicans are either blocking any legislation that is coming out of the White House um, they're not playing ball on anything they have no interest in it so could you have predicted that it would become quite this divisive all those years ago no <clears throat> as I said from the 60s through the 80s, um, the idea of being in Congress, a member of, of House or Senate, there was a sense of public service that went beyond the service to your party. Now, what, what changed? Many things changed. Uh, at that time, Members were interested in policy, and they worked themselves on policy, and then they were able to cross between the parties on issues where there was some common interest. But the laws re regarding financing of politics and politicians were changed. And so from the late 80s onwards, most politicians were less and less involved with policymaking and more and more uh, involved with money raising. So they handed off policy to the staffs. And the staffs becoming more and more powerful were hired by lobbying firms. Uh, and so the brains actually drifted from the members to the staffs, and the staffs drifted to what we call a K Street. And what we have now are politicians 
who raise money in order to stay in office uh, as a full-time job. I mean, they're constantly running from one fundraiser to another, very little time for policy policy making. And uh, so, um, in a sense, new ideas don't get much of a hearing. Um, the only way you get something done is to have a clash and then seek two or three votes one way or another to, mo to move uh, a bit forward. Now, it will get worse because probably the Republicans will take control of the lower house uh, in, after the November election. Um, and when I talk to members of the Republican side, <clears throat> what are you going to do? I said, we're going to do nothing at all and just pave the way for a Republican president in 2024. Um, you should look forward to two years of doing nothing. And I said, well, you, you really need your own agenda so that you you have a party that stands for something. Well, they answer, we don't know who the candidate would be. If it's Trump, we don't need anything except saying we're for Trump. And if it's not Trump, we can't agree with each other what the new party looks like. In the meantime, <clears throat> we are simply working on discipline, and anybody who's out of line uh, is castigated, punished, uh, <clears throat> demeaned. And uh, so, but I've foreseen that. No, I, I th I'm amazed at how, as I say, I repeat what I said, that we've come into a class war now. <clears throat> And um, and between the parties, it really isn't about policy. It's just about power. But we, we've got to a point now where this is also a matter of life and death, because if you look at the insurrection on the 6th of January, you know, that that did result in the death of several people. So it really is, you know, it's it's got beyond ideology now. This is really life and death. And in fact, um, yesterday, the U.S. professor Noam Chomsky said we're approaching the most dangerous point in human history. Uh, when he talks about how people are turning against each other, we're seeing it obviously with Ukraine. We're seeing it with Russia being uh, isolated by the rest of the international community. There's a chance that China could weigh in at some point, which would be catastrophic fundamentally. I mean, do you have uh, as pessimistic a pe as pessimistic an attitude as 93-year-old Noam Chomsky, or do you have more hope for? for those of us who are a little younger and the future of the human race, certainly from a geopolitical perspective? I think that all of this is happening at a time when the economy has been slowing down. Um, and although we say we're in recovery, it's disappointing many people. And uh, so in theory, we have high employment, in practice, we have a lot of people listed as employed who are doing maybe four or five hours a week or less. Um, <clears throat> you know, you only have to have one hour to be listed as employed. Um, and 
the young people in between 20s, 30s, young professionals, they are going through what, what has been described as a great resignation. They're, they're saying, I'm not coming back to work for a big corporation anymore. Um, <clears throat> I'm willing to do um, accounting for you. I'm willing to do uh, public relations, uh, uh, media development. Um, <clears throat> and so there's a, in the pipeline of people coming up, what I see is a, we've had it with the old system. The pandemic was uh, freed us from nine to five, five days a week. Um, we can live differently. Uh, so, and as for the older ones, it's just a, a confusion with so much confrontation, where to turn. We don't have any political leaders with a new narrative. Um, the politician who gets the most attention right now is Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. And the reason why it it's basically simple. He's a centrist on almost every issue. And <clears throat> the divided Congress can't find any way to close the gap between the one side and the other, but they need his vote. So he turns up to be extra powerful simply because he's the one swing vote between a 50-50 Congress. But he's preventing an entire political movement, yes. isn't he? I mean, you know, for everything that Biden was, people voted for Biden for, the, the progressive nature of his policies, Joe Manchin, who presides over the second poorest state in the United States and lives on a yacht, uh, is somebody who is effectively stalling an entire generation's desire to keep the country moving forward. I mean, do you think he even cares or realizes that it's not just those, I mean, his personal interests, as we know, oil and coal, his family business, but the people of West Virginia are not benefiting from the decisions that he's making? No, I th but he, I think he's the old-style politician. Um, we've got an impasse here. It's time to move to the middle. The progressives are, are, are not where the country is. The extreme right is, are not where the country is. The middle, the ambiguous middle is where they are, and this is where I'm going to stake out um, my territory. Now, so I think actually he's probably closer, closer to the, the, the center of gravity of American politics than anybody else. He doesn't have any major themes, but there's a lot of frustration about progressives are going too far to the left, and the, and the Republican right is going too far to the right. We need somebody in the middle, uh, at least to, to mark time. Now, <clears throat> would he be a candidate in 2024, it wouldn't surprise me, but I don't think he's aiming for that right now. <clears throat> but there is a search around the country for are there new faces. Um, <clears throat> and 
I'm just looking at all the governors personally, uh, one by one. I'm not terribly impressed because what I see among the governors, 50 governors, uh, not one of them uh, makes speeches about the world in which we live, the, the challenges we're facing now. <clears throat> they, they all talk about their own state issues. And when I think back 50 years or more, we had lots of governors who eventually ended up in the Senate, but made big speeches about what the nation needs. We don't see any of that now. Is that a lack of intellectualism? I mean, this has been talked about, this, this kind of lack of intellectualism, both from leadership, but also amongst the wider voter, this kind of lack of desire to get into the weeds of any conversation and any subject, and especially to try and engage with Republicans about their own policies. There doesn't seem to be any interest or desire to, to really talk, to debate. And, and it seems that these kind of headline-grabbing you know, build the wall, ban abortion. These are things that these kind of hot button issues are really the only kind of interplay that's happening in, in modern politics. And, and so where's it gone? Where's the depth of thinking gone? <clears throat> well, it has gone to areas other than public service. Um, in, in, in the period... 1950s, 60s, 70s, young people were very attracted, especially ambitious young people, attracted to public service. A lot of bright people came to the government, sent by their families if they were wealthy, you know, do your service uh, before you turn to taking care of yourself. That's all died out. Now, Everybody looks at government services, a bureaucracy, boring, slow-moving, um, um, not really always reliable, um, somewhat corrupt, um, somewhat bought out or uh, by uh, the reg- you know the regulators bought out by the regulated, <laughs> um, so. Uh, how, to, how to summarize it, not so easy, but what I think is happening, um, I have two sets of uh, kids. Um, my grown-ups, uh, you probably know Pippa, my oldest daughter, who's quite an international figure. Uh, I have two other daughters by that marriage. But then, years later, I remarried, I have three 20-year-olds now. <clears throat> they're, they're each in professional jobs. And I'm asking them, what's it like? What are your friends like? And I see their friends. And they're all in a mood, you know, we really have to do things in a new way. And um, there's no point in cozying up to senior people right now because they're not people that inspire us. So... Maybe we have to just make our own um, efforts. They're, they're into teamwork, interestingly, um, rather than individual achievement. 
the love sense of, we'll get a bunch of people together and see if we can do something. So there, there is a kind of citizen activism. You know, we've seen it with obviously the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the Women's March, where people are compelled of, of all races and of all genders to kind of come together to kind of fight the, I mean, both of those issues were obviously against Donald Trump and, he, and his movement. But fundamentally, we are seeing a, a, a new level of political activism that happens on social media as well as protests in the street. I mean, that makes me hopeful, but is it enough to kind of because it's almost as if our elected representatives in many cases don't reflect the society to which they govern and as you said earlier about how the workplace has changed we're working from home and yet there's very little talk of that coming from our representatives yeah. <clears throat> my sense is that the economy our economy the economies in Europe and Asia uh, are going to be um, disappointingly weak. And the complacency that we were able to enjoy in the last 20, 30 years is going to dissipate. And we're going to have hard times. Out of hard times, probably we'll get new generations of problem solvers, people who say, we. We can live better than this. Um, so, yeah, I, my sense from an economic point of view is that we're going to have to cross a desert, which is really unpleasant for two or three or four years. But out of that, um, we'll see new efforts born. Uh, we can live better than this. We've got to end the civil strife, civil war. The, you know, the civil war to me is ridiculous because it's not only with each other, but by now having civil war between ourselves and our ancestors, you know, tearing down statues and old buildings, renaming buildings. I mean, it's as if we're against everybody, past and present. But I don't think that stays. Uh, um, so uh, the process, it, it takes a shock, a war or uh, a bad period, a Great Depression. Something is needed to force a new attitude and to generate what I call the, the core uh, machinery of politics, which is uh, consensus building. You know, you don't have an idea and run it. You have an idea and gather a lot of supporters and build build a momentum. We don't see any of that right now. Can we talk about economics just for a moment? And, and, and I have a theory, and, I, and I'd be very interested in your view, because we're seeing uh, workers start to unionize a little now. We're seeing Amazon workers unionize. We're seeing... Uh, I was reading about Dallas-Fort Worth Airport where they've, you know, they're looking to unionize like uh, baggage handlers who are currently working for eight bucks an hour and who are, you know, they're desperate and people are working harder than ever. They're working multiple jobs. They're driving Uber at night just to make up enough money to live because the cost of living has risen 
over the last 50 years that the graph has been consistent, and yet the wages graph stopped uh, around 25, 30 years ago and didn't grow. People are still working for the same wages now that they were working for 25 years ago, and yet you can't buy a house with that money anymore. So I personally bring all of the anger, the dispossession, the, you know, the desire to follow the Trump cult and all of these new movements that are breaking out really it all comes down to wages at the end of the day for, for, for me and I'm interested in your view yeah. because if people don't have enough money to live they're going to get angry and they're going to yeah. look to blame somebody yeah um, let's just take that point um, wages of some people were, were rising so when we look at wages we can see average, in, average wages were rising last few years, but it really was wages of supervisory people, um, not, not the, the mainstream working class. <clears throat> um, now we've got a new problem. Inflation is rising faster than wages in every, in every profession, in every way of, of life. So this year, next year, we're going to see a declining standard of living. And for the rich, they won't feel the pain. But for most people, this is going to be a really unpleasant period. Uh, and it will hit in the areas, number one, rent. How much, you know, just to stay where you live. Um, food, just to feed the babies, feed your children, keep, keep, keep uh, a roof over your head, maybe keep the air conditioning on if you, if you can. <clears throat> this is going to be really painful. The Federal Reserve is going to try to put a lid on this, but the only way they can do it is they have to crash the stock market they have to crash the economy and bring it, bring everything to an almost standstill. Um, but even then, um, I think almost all the media are under emphasizing, under not giving enough attention to the reality that there will not be enough food to go around worldwide for the next several years, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Part of it related to Ukraine, yes, but um, part of it related to, for example, China, which is having the worst uh, agricultural crop year in their history, um, where they, the Chinese are unable to feed everybody. We're going to have probably famine conditions in North Africa, Africa, and some other parts of the world. And that means that your food and my food is going to cost more because some of it will be sold to other places. So this is not going to be a happy period. We're going to get more, um, more frustration uh, that we've seen, just more of it. But out of that, 
I, I do. I'm. A, I have a feeling that something better is coming, and uh, and that the economy, particularly in America, the economy is capable of rebounding. Um, we, we, you know, we we have oceans on both sides, so we're not going to be invaded. But what we do have is a population that's um, agreeable to the idea of moving around. If you don't like California, let's go to Texas. Um, we're not stuck in in uh, immobility. Uh, and and now, yes, in the South, workers are. You know, have been in the area where there's a right to work, unions are not in favor. But now they're saying, well, let's get together and straighten this out. And they're unionizing. <clears throat> there is action beginning to be taken. But what I'm describing is a period of disappointment will continue in terms of basics of food, heat, um, just living, um, driving your car is going to become too expensive. <clears throat> and if we if we turn everything over to electricity, the electric bill is going to get too expensive. Uh, so, as I said, we're, we're going to cross a desert, uh, and it's going to be an unhappy period. And Democrats may be blamed, but if the Republicans take over, they'll be blamed because they can't fix it. But uh, I'm a fan of what I call a new industrial revolution. What we have coming out of uh, science uh, and uh, the universities, the national labs, a whole generation of new things new ways of doing things. We're going to, you know, we're so used to building houses with two by four pieces of wood. Um, and we're going to enter a period where we make composites with what, what is called 3D printing. And we just build um, in, in a few days uh, large residential centers with materials that won't decay, don't take much labor. It's just really assembling new materials. It's coming very fast. Um, Jimmy Carter's Habitat for Humanity has been ex exploring this, and it's really moving. We're going to see automobiles, whether they're electric or or gasoline or more likely 10 years from now, hydrogen, they're going to be assembled in entirely new places, completely different technologies, no more big furnaces to make steel. A lot is coming. Um, so I'm optimistic if you ask me five years from now. And with that optimism, that up, ability to turn upwards, climb out, we will find teamwork emerging and a new generation willing to go back to how do we, how do we fix this? Um, so <clears throat> I'm gloomy about now, but pretty up, upbeat 
about five years from now. The U.S. is seeking to realign its commercial ties with China rather than seek a divorce between the world's biggest economies, according to the uh, trade chief, Catherine Tai. So, I mean, obviously, looking back over the last five years, the Trump administration painted China as the enemy uh, in so many ways, yet also contradicted that with, you know, I'm best friends with President Xi Jinping and, you know, he and I, we get on very well. But, you know, use China, you know, blame them for the pandemic, uh, blame them for ruining the American economy because they do everything cheaper and, you know, stuff needed to be made in America. So we, we know the rhetoric. We've heard this time and time again. But with a new administration in place, how possible is it for America to exist without China's trade, without the, you know, importing China's goods, without doing business with China. Is it is it possible for the US to stand on its own two feet in that way? Or should we be in, inviting China to continue trading as they have been in previous years? <clears throat> China, for the last 30, 35 years, went through a process that that Japan did 20 years earlier, um, moving up the value-added ladder to away from uh, cheap labor, um, making of small plastic things, um, upwards to making high-tech. Now they've reached the plateau. And... Now they are trying to figure out, can they centralize more um, without destroying innovation? Or do they have to become more free internally um, with a wide income disparity underneath a lot of hungry Chinese Xi Jinping wants to centralize more. He wants to have, you know, a system of social control so that what people, what everybody spends is known to the government. The government can guide your behavior. If, you know, if you're in an area which is short of water and you use too much water, they can dock your pay. Um, they are not going to be able to climb out by more centralization because it's going to crush innovation. Everything will stop. And they are now telling young Chinese, don't go to the U.S. for education. Stay here. It's going to end that um, transfer of knowledge that has been so important for China. China's growth in my judgment, I've dealt with China off and on quite a few years. And in fact, some of the most senior Chinese met with me um, in the 80s, trying to rethink how centralized could they get. And my, my view is that they are now on a no growth plateau because they have to feed themselves, but they're going to have uh, you know, they're not going to have the big surpluses they used to have. For us, 
um, they are not going to be as an important a market as they used to be. So, to me, China is now facing what Japan faced uh, about 20, 25, 30 years ago, um, a lost, a lost uh, decade, or maybe lost decades, plural. And I don't think they will be as aggressive in world affairs because um, military spending is fiercely expensive. And then if you really want to go to war, now that's really expensive. The only country that can afford a big military is the U.S. And there's no one who can go up against the U.S. for more than a few days. Um, so uh, to me, China is resolving itself. It's going to have to rethink how it governs. And I'm not sure it's at all stable. But there's a lot of pushback against Xi Jinping developing, not only from the rich who, who don't like his controls, but from average people who just think that Xi Jinping is too much like Mao and not enough like Deng Xiaoping. How, how do we go forward with this political landscape that is increasingly divided? And I want to talk about the pandemic just for mm. a moment because... Some new analysis has come out that fundamentally um, COVID-19 death rates were far higher in Republican states than in Democrat mm. states. Uh, and this is due to obviously the, the propaganda put out by Republicans regarding vaccines, the, the QAnon movement, the, you know, the, the, the Trump movement. There was a lot of misinformation. Fox News was responsible for a lot of this anti-Dr. Fauci saying that he was, uh, you know, he was uh, creating a bioweapon in the vaccine. I mean, a lot of really far out there stuff that a lot of people took very seriously, aside from the former president saying that drinking bleach or shining a light from inside the body <laughs> might cure coronavirus. But, um, you know, the reality is, and we mentioned, you know, life and death earlier, this is coming down to life and death. More people are dying in Republican states from coronavirus. It's simply now a fact. The, the research from the Pew Research Center is clear. So, I mean, this is, this is very sad for me and it's very worrying for me because, you know, I, I moved from the UK to the US because I wanted a better life and I knew that America was better. It just is, you know, just comparing my quality of life, it is better here. But I also see that there is a, a greater um, divide here. And, and invariably, the people that are making the most noise are often the poorest people. You know, the people that went into the capital on the 6th of January, they were people that were struggling. They were desperate. They didn't really know what else to do. They were listening to Trump. They were following his instructions. They were just, you know, they were really the, the footmen in, mm. this, in this saga. And so... We're getting to a point now where, as we said earlier, policy is kind of irrelevant on the right. There are no policies. It's just a fight to who can be the winner and we want to win and we want to own. But at the same time, you have people dying. You have, you know, health care is a big problem. Republicans have been trying for years to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and, and failing. So why is it that the people on the right are voting for? I just feel like they're voting for the wrong team. 
you know, sh- surely these dispossessed people would be- would benefit if they voted for Democrats. And is is that something that maybe Republican lawmakers kind of realize is that they are leading a, a team of people that are voting for the wrong the wrong team, and that's why they need to maybe cheat in elections or redraw boundary maps or gerrymander. You know, this is a this is a bigger conversation, but fundamentally, I just feel sad for the people that are voting f- for Republicans and not seeing any benefits. Yeah. Well, you put your finger on something. Um, if, if you ask, if one asks oneself, why is it that the Republicans are unable to devise a new agenda, a new narrative for the policies they are for? Not the policies they're against, but what they think should be done. They're simply unable to do it. Um, and the, yeah, I think many Republicans understand that 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 they need to be far more over towards the center, towards the Democratic center, especially because that's where the solutions lie, um, but they're not going to say it, and uh, and they if they begin to talk that way, the party will ostracize them. So they're caught in this terrible machine that cannot come up with a policy agenda, cannot come up with a program, cannot identify a leader that others can follow. Um, you know, they're unable to get beyond Trump because they have no one else. Um, so it's a, it's a party that is in search of, of, a, of a new identity. Because it got, it got a new identity five years ago, didn't it? You know, tr- Trump kind of galvanized yeah. all of this hidden... Uh, racism and, and and division that was, you know, I think people kind of ate gobstoppers for eight years during Obama's presidency. They kind of put up with having a black guy in the White House. And, and, and Trump really was the kind of antithesis to that. You know, he kind of afforded people to be able to come out and, and, and almost let out this huge sigh of relief from having to keep Sturm for eight years. And, and, and that goes back to the kind of fundamental you know, racism that you know, very much lies at the, the, the heart mm. of America. And I hate to say yeah. that because I, you know, I, 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 didn't, I don't want to live in a racist country. I don't even think it really is a racist country, but so much of the history is built on racism. It's, it's almost impossible to, to deny. And you know, only this week we're seeing yet another white police officer being led off the hook for executing a young 22-year-old black man in Amir mm-hmm. Locke. And these things don't really help, do they? They don't really help pr- progress the country when, when the Justice Department is, is siding with, with the wrong guy. Um, let me put it as I see it in a nutshell. I think that Trump um, essentially... Um, was a fascist, is a fascist. You know, a single leader, we don't need safeguards, we don't need the uh, um, the restraints of budget in the Congress. Somebody has to take action. I'm ready to act. And 
if I'm summoned to Congress to explain, I'm not going. Uh, it, it's the essence of fascism. One, you know, he, you could say, uh, a pursuit of being king. Um, and it, his attack on the balance of powers, the Constitution, was so fundamental. We're still fighting about it now, um, trying to understand how that could have happened. Um, now, are most Republicans that way? No, but at least he was decisive and willing to shake things up. So, <clears throat> so he got a following. It's a kind of cult, but boiled down, he wanted to rule without boundaries, without restraint on what he could do. And he found Congress inconvenient. He found uh, the courts inconvenient, still found, finds the courts inconvenient. He doesn't believe in all of that. Well, because he's run a private business his whole life. Yeah. Right? He's, been the, he's been the king of his own castle, and he's never had anybody, apart from his father, to kind of tell him what yeah. to do. And so there's a whole new concept, having to be accountable. Yeah. And, uh, and he would like to do it again, if possible. But he's getting older. And um, yeah, I have some doubt that he has the uh, staying power uh, at the age he's coming to, to go out every day, um, meeting one group after another. Uh, he'll get tired. Um, and also, arguably, he's already playing the role of president just at Mar-a-Lago. You know, people still yeah, call him Mr. Yeah. President. He still wears the badge. He still, he still enjoys the, the security and the, the trappings and luxury of the presidency, even though he's out of office. In fact, you could argue that to his base, he still is the president. He tells them that he won. <laughs> so to all intents and purposes, he never really left office. Yeah. Well... The, the safety net for the Constitution has to be found. It, the courts are not enough. We need a stronger backbone on the part of members of the House and Senate. Um, they all have jurisdictions. They all have powers. They, they just have to uh, begin to assert themselves at once again. Uh, it makes for a complicated power structure, but it, I, I think when that whole system of, of balance of powers was invented, it was pure genius um, that the founding fathers, as we say, anticipated that there would be a desire to return to a single leader, and it had to be prevented at all costs, and that the, there had to be a division between raising revenue and spending in order to limit the power uh, of, of, of the central authority. Thank you, Harold. Seriously, um, your, your wisdom and your insight is uh, it's, it's very rare these days to be able to kind of access such uh, experience. So I'm very grateful. Harold Malmgren. 
here on The Weekend Show. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast, but also the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen whilst you make your morning coffee. And please leave an iTunes review for both shows. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.